In Isaiah chapter 65, the thought continues on, as you might expect, from the previous chapter. Now, beginning in the middle of Isaiah chapter 63 and on through chapter 64, there's a very stirring and dramatic prayer from the prophet Isaiah unto the Lord. And the prayer isn't only from Isaiah, because this prayer that Isaiah offers up in chapter 63 and 64 is a prayer that's in the mouth of the remnant of the Lord. It's as if Isaiah is praying as an intercessor on behalf of others. Now, beginning with Isaiah chapter 65, is the Lord's answer to this prayer. Look at it here, and it's not an answer that you might necessarily want. When we pray to God and cry out to him, sometimes he speaks to our hearts in a way that's revealing, that's convicting. Check it out here, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom almost a shocking answer to the prayer. Might I say, not properly an answer, more a reply to the prayer of the remnant. The prayer of the remnant voiced through the prophet Isaiah was one of calling God, God, please act, please move, move on behalf of your people. Look at the terrible state we're in, Lord God, won't you move? And then if you notice here the response that the Lord gives in verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 65, it's not the warmest of responses. It's a confrontation over the sin of the people. Matter of fact, God tells them, you're not really seeking me at all. Now, I don't think he's speaking specifically of Isaiah, because as we get into this chapter, you're going to find that God really makes a point to say that there are some among his people who are his servants. It's not a completely lost cause. No, not by any means. But no, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing how he's pointing out here that that he was sought by those who did not ask for him. The Jewish exiles in Babylon were examples of those who did not ask for the Lord, but they would not find him because for the most part they sought him insincerely. Yet God would be found by those who did not seek him, namely the Gentiles. If you notice it here, he points out, verse 2, I stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. It wasn't that the Lord had ignored the Jewish exiles in Babylon. No, he had stretched out his hands like the, to them. And some responded. You think of the prophet Daniel. You think of others who responded to the Lord. But most were rebellious people. And if you notice, look at how he defines the rebellion. In verse 2, who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. 
you know, to trust in our own wisdom, to trust in our own judgment and our own thinking. That's to be among the rebellious people. This idea is repeated in several different places in Scripture. The the phrase in the book of Judges that characterizes the wickedness of that time shows it. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Today, that's the American dream. The Bible calls it anarchy and wickedness. To, To live according to your own thoughts, it may sound like freedom, but really it's bondage. Or how about this passage from Proverbs? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. No, no, instead of living according to our own thoughts, the Bible says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And God says, this is a people, verse 3, who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Then he goes on to describe how they would sacrifice in the gardens, how they would eat swine's flesh, each of these things grossly offensive to the Lord. Yet all the time they would keep a self-righteous veneer. Look at it here in verse 5. These are the same people who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. No wonder God considered such people as smoke in his nostrils. And judgment was promised to him. He says, I'm not going to keep silent anymore, I'm going to repay amazing that anyone could think I am holier than you when they're steeped in the sins described in this passage. Isn't this a dramatic display of the blindness that pride brings? They could say, I am holier than you and really mean it because of their deep blindness. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage on verse 5. It was titled, Self-Righteousness, a Smoldering Heap of Rubbish. Uh, That's an on-fire sermon, I'll tell you that. Let me read you an extended passage. It's just too good to pass up. It said, Moreover, self-righteous men like foxes have many tricks and schemes. They condemn in other people what they consider to be very excusable in themselves. They would cry out against others for a tenth part of the sin which they allow in themselves. Certain constitutional tendencies and necessities of circumstances and various surroundings all serve as ample apologies. Besides this, if it be admitted that they're wrong upon some points, yet in other directions they're beyond rebuke. If they drink, they do not swear. And if they swear, they do not steal. They make a great deal out of the negatives. If they steal, they are not greedy and miserly, but spend their gains freely. If they practice fornication, yet they do not commit adultery. If they talk filthily, yet they they boast that they do not lie. They would be counted well because they're not universally bad. They do not break down every wall, and therefore they plead that they're not trespassers. As if a debtor for $100 should claim to be excused because he does not owe $200. Or if a highwayman should say, I didn't stop all the travelers on the road, I only robbed one or two, and therefore I ought not to be punished. Or if a man should willfully break the windows of your shop, I guarantee you, you would not take it as an excuse if he said, I didn't break them all, I just broke one sheet of plate glass. Pleas which would not be mentioned in a human court are thought good enough to offer to God. Oh, the folly of our race. Friends, it's amazing, the self-righteousness of man. 
who say, keep to yourself, do not come near to me, for I am holier than you. You need to avoid self-righteousness at all counts. Yet at the same time, there's a blessing for the true servants of God. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for my herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. You see, despite the unholy rebellion and pride of some of the remnant, God still has his servants. Isn't that glorious? God still has his servants, and they're going to be regathered in the land. He says, my elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. God has a special place for his people who have sought him. Really, the image of verse 8 is striking. He says, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so I will do for my servant's sake. The idea is that God finds a few good grapes among a whole cluster of bad. And so he says, it's for the sake of these few good grapes. For my servant's sake, he says, that the Lord shows blessing and that he restores. Isn't it beautiful, my friends? Even in the midst of real corruption, of real difficulty, God sees, sees those few good grapes and he blesses them and he works with them. But alas, not everybody is like that. Look at verse 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad and furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore, I will number you for the sword and you shall all bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. See, if you notice this on top of all their other sins is the sin of simply refusing to listen to God's correction. Did you notice that in verse 12? When I called, you did not answer. Friends, sometimes this is the most significant sin that we commit against God. Every one of us knows what it's like to sin out of human weakness, out of human frailty. And it's one thing for us to fall into sin through weakness or ignorance. Such sin is indeed sin, and God has to deal with it as such. But refusing to respond to the voice of the Lord, that's another matter altogether. You hear the phone ringing, right? It rings, it rings, it rings. God is calling you. He's speaking to your heart. And it rings, and it rings, and it rings. Why don't you go pick it up? Because you know who's on the other line and you don't want to hear it. And so it rings and it rings and it rings. And people have caller ID on that phone that goes to the Lord, right? So they're always on guard, aren't they? And when the Lord calls, they won't answer. They won't pick up the phone. They won't listen to what the Lord has to say to them. Listen, it's bad enough to be speeding down the highway, right? It's worse to ignore the flashing red lights in your rearview mirror. And friends, tonight, on some of you, the Lord's flashing the red lights. Why don't you pull over? 
you're like one of those morons in the high-speed chase. Have you ever seen one of them turn out right? Have you ever seen one of them get away? No, they just make the police even more angry, and they just endanger their lives and the lives of other people. They always get caught. That's how it is for you. You're not picking up the phone. You won't pull over with the flashing red lights that you think you can outrun God. What? What are you, new? Did you just start this game? It's not going to work. No. No, we need to listen to God's correction. I never worry very much about anybody who can listen to God's correction. They may fall. They may stumble. They may sin. God will correct them. God will put them on the right path. The people you worry about are those who will not listen to God's correction. The the tendency in yourself, which should really frighten you, is when you see yourself hardening yourself against God's voice, hardening yourself against God's correction. So look at what God does. You've seen the contrast, right? His servants on the one hand and and the the wicked, the the false religious people on the other hand. Look at the difference now. He's going to compare in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for joy or for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. The Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Friends, the true servants of the Lord, they'll be blessed. But the false servants, those with the empty religion, they'll be cursed. God promises something better. Look at verse 17. This is where it starts getting good. Not that it's been bad before, but you understand what I'm saying. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and my joy and joy in my people. The the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. As the ultimate solution to man's sin problem, God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, friends, this takes place after the millennium after the glorious thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth, when this very earth, when this very sky is done away with, and God makes a new heavens and a new earth. Peter saw this. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the book of Revelation, John also sees this. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there's something important for us to understand here. From the context of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, we see that the new heavens and the new earth come after the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation. And it's not connected with the millennial earth, but with the eternal state. You see, 
if all we had to go on regarding the millennial earth was, or the new heavens and the new earth, I should say, is this passage, we would probably connect the millennial earth with the new heavens and the new earth. But no, no other passage of scripture instruct us that what Isaiah talks about here in verses 17, 18, and 19 is distinct from what he talks about beginning with verse 20. But Notice he says, And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Do you ever wonder if people in heaven are going to be haunted by bad memories of the past? I have a biblical answer for you. No. The former shall not be remembered to come to mind. Isn't it a beautiful thing to be able to forget such things? Just have it wiped clean. Lord, take that hard drive and, and format it. Just, just change it all over again, Lord. No, the... The former things shall not be remembered. Instead, look at it here. It's beautiful. Verse 18, For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people as a joy. (laughs) You know, that's what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. A lot of joy. The book of Revelation describes in stunning imagery the descent of the new Jerusalem from heaven to the new earth. And, and it's in this Jerusalem, the eternal new Jerusalem, that the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No, no more of that. It's a new time, a new age. If you look at it here, verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. Now, let me advise you on something. Between verse 19 and verse 20, there's about a thousand years. We're in one of those passages of Scripture in the prophecies where it shifts gears rather quickly. 17, 18, and 19 are talking about the eternal state. Verse 20 to the end of the chapter speaks of the millennial earth, when Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on this earth. It says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. The child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Friends, this is glorious. Quickly, as is the prophetic habit, John shifts, excuse me, Isaiah shifts gears and now speaks not of the eternal state, but of the millennial earth. Now, there will be death in the millennial earth. Look at it here. He says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. If somebody dies after 100 years, oh, he was just a kid. And if an adult, if a sinner dies at 100 years, well, he was cursed. Now, if a person lives to 100, you're amazed, you're blessed. What a blessing. No, not in the millennium. You see, there will be death in the millennial earth, but in the transformed ecology and social order of the world under the reign of Jesus Christ, people will live incredibly longer as they did in the days before the flood. And notice what else. Not only will that be different. Verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
The millennial reign of Jesus Christ will not only be a time of biological transformation, it will also be a time of social transformation. When perfect justice reigns over the earth, never again will somebody be robbed of the fruits of their labor. If you build a house, nobody's going to steal it from you. You will inhabit that house. If you plant vineyards, no one will steal the fruit of it. You will eat their fruit. God gloriously promises My elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now, this may not sound like such a great blessing to you, unless you've ever been ripped off. Unless you've ever worked at a job and not got paid for it. Unless you've ever worked hard to gain something and it's been stolen from you. Then you say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and establish his justice on the earth. Now, one significant reason there will be such justice on the millennial earth is because Satan will be bound for these thousand years. The book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3 tells us that. His career is cut short. He will not be able to work his mischief during the days of the millennial earth. Friends, if you notice as well, it says, verse 23, They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. There will be babies born and raised in the millennial earth. And this is another indication that we're not in the eternal state. In the eternal state, we neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But in the millennial earth, those allowed to enter are blessed of the Lord and their descendants will populate the earth. Now, the changes... And the world in the millennial earth will not only be biological, will not only be uh, ecological, will not only be social, it will also be a time of spiritual transformation. Look at it here in verse 24. Shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. See, this will be a time of profound spiritual transformation and intimacy. There will be an immediate and constant sense of the presence of God. And his knowledge will cover the earth as the waters cover the ocean, Isaiah chapter 11 tells us. Now, this does not mean that every person who populates the world in the millennial earth will be saved. No. It only means that the opportunity for such close relationship will be widely enjoyed. Now, how do we know that not everybody on the millennial earth will be saved? Well, at the conclusion of the time of the millennial earth, when the thousand years are finished, Satan is released from his confinement And he finds many willing servants on the earth whom he gathers for one last and strikingly futile rebellion against God. So not everybody populating the earth during the millennium will be saved. Well, how is the Lord going to keep them in line? The Bible tells us with a rod of iron. In other words, evildoers will be punished justly and quickly. You know, you look at our legal system today. And if a person murders another person, when a person is murdered, there's a better chance of someone winning the lottery than there is of that murderer being caught, arrested, convicted, and executed. 
It's not going to be like that during the millennial earth. It says that people will be like a clay pot, and Jesus Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. Now, have you ever hit a clay pot with a crowbar? (laughs) Not much resistance, is there? It just kind of pops. Now, the other reason why righteousness will be enjoyed on the millennial earth is because God's resurrected people, you and I, will be his civil servants. We will not populate the earth as citizens of earth during the millennial earth. We will be, I don't know, people with dual citizenship in heaven and earth, in resurrected bodies, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. God knows the spot you're going to fulfill in the millennial earth. That trial that you're going through, that you're resenting before God because you don't know why he's putting you through it, you know what? Maybe it won't make any sense during this lifetime. But when you rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the millennial earth, you'll look back and you'll say, oh, that's why I went through that. What you're living for is much, much bigger than the next 24 hours or a year or 10 years or the days you walk on this earth. God has a much, much bigger work to do in you than you can even imagine. So not everybody will be saved, but I think roughly we could say that the proportions will be reversed. I mean, today the Bible says many are called, but few are chosen, and narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way, and few that find it. That's what it says about those who are saved on the earth today. I think the proportions will be reversed in the millennial earth. Most people on the earth will be saved and have a real relationship with the Lord, and there will be a few who don't. Now, one of the reasons why most are saved and know the Lord on the millennial earth is because of who populates the millennial earth. You've probably wondered about that. Who is going to populate the millennial earth? Well, first of all, it's people who weren't taken up in the rapture, number one. Number two, it's people who did survive the Great Tribulation. That's the second screening, if you will. And number three, it's the people who made it through the judgment of the sheep and the goats. When Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, and the judgments of the Great Tribulation and Armageddon have taken away at least a third of the earth's population. Staggering to think, but it's true. Jesus Christ is going to have a judgment. This is the judgment described in Matthew chapter 25, the judgment of the nations, where he divides the sheep and the goats. And this is not a judgment for eternal life. This is a judgment of either going to your eternal doom or being allowed to enter into the eternal kingdom. In other words, God's going to screen the people before they come in. There it is, the fancy nightclub, and everybody wants to get in. you got the long line outside, right? you got the guy at the door with the rope, right? And he opens up the door for some people and he doesn't let other people through. That's what Jesus is going to be for people in the millennial kingdom. Now, because I believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon, I believe that some people that you know will be in the millennial kingdom. They will live in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Why not? Now, again, these are people who are not taken up in the rapture, number one. Number two, they survive the Great Tribulation. No easy task. And then number three, they make it through the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The millennial earth will have a screened population. 
that in terms of righteousness will not be perfect, but better than the present earth. Now, not only where there'll be biological and spiritual and social transformation, but as we said before, also ecological transformation. Look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now that's a change, isn't it? No longer will predators stalk their victims. Instead, even the wolf and the lamb will get along. If you're looking for that passage in the Bible that talks about the lion and the lamb laying down together, you're not going to find it. This is about as close as it comes. It's the wolf and the lamb, and they're going to lie down together. Now, there's nothing unusual about that. Wolves and lambs have been lying down together for a long time. It's just only one of them gets up. (laughs) But in that day, no, they're both going to lie down in perfect safety because look at it here at the end of verse 25. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is the glorious result of the transformation that happens during the millennial earth. The world will be different biologically, spiritually, socially, and ecologically. It'll be a different earth altogether. Chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Aren't we grateful that here the Lord puts things back into proper perspective? I don't think we can understand much of anything until we understand that the Lord God is enthroned in heaven and that the earth is under his command. Indeed, the earth is his footstool, his ottoman, the thing he puts his feet up on. So he looks and he says, you're going to build me a house? No, God says, don't build me a house. You want to do something for me? Look at it here, verse 2. On this one I will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Friends, you may want to serve God, but you may want to serve him your way. All right, Lord, I'll serve you as long as I can be in control of my service. All right, I've got to have the right kind of image. I've got to have the right kind of thing. I've got to have the right kind of job. I've got to do what I want, when I want it, how I want it. Then I'll serve you. I'll build you a house, God. Yeah, I'll do that. You may want to build God something, but what can we build that is worthy of God? Nothing. You know what God really wants from you? A poor and a contrite spirit. You know what God really wants from you? He wants you to tremble at his word. You know what contrite means there in verse 2? The Hebrew is literally lamed or disabled. It's speaking of someone who walks with a limp, who's aware of the damage wrought by sin. You know, if you were lame, you'd know it every day of your life, wouldn't you? You'd walk around. It would be a constant reminder. You'd say, I can't stand upright. I can't walk right before God. That's who I am. A contrite spirit. And then, the one who trembles at his word. 
Is that you? Do you tremble at the word of God? Do you want to tremble at the word of God? You know, by and large, and I'll speak not specifically of our congregation, but by and large in the Christian community, people do not want to tremble at God's word. They want it free and easy and happy and clappy and smooth and gentle from God's word. They don't want to tremble at it. Charles Spurgeon said, they tremble at the searching power of God's word. Do you never come into this place and sit down in the pew and say, Lord, grant that thy word may search me and try me that I may not be deceived? Certain people must always have sweets and comforts. But God's wise children do not wish for these in undue measure. Daily bread we ask for, not daily sugar. Look at God's answer to empty religious ritual. Verse 3. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offer as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abomination, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. You know, in their empty religious ritualism, God's people thought that they were pleasing him. The Lord says that when a man kills a bull in sacrifice, if it's just empty ritualism, he may as well be killing a man. A man comes and he sacrifices a lamb. If it's done with the wrong heart, you may as well be breaking a dog's neck, and a dog could never be offered in sacrifice before the Lord. Or how about this one? You're offering a grain offering, you don't do it with the right heart, you may as well be offering swine's blood to God. You see what this is, friends? It's not all about the external, it's about the internal. It's about where your heart's at before God. Not empty religious rituals. No. No, friends, there's... Those who've chosen their own ways, and God says, if you choose your own way, I'm going to choose a delusion for you and give it to you. Again, look at his searching comment in verse 4. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. How can you avoid being given over to a delusion? By answering the Lord when he calls. By hearing him when he speaks. It's really that simple. Now the Lord is going to repay his enemies. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. Do you see what's going on here in verse 5? You got the, well, I hate to paint it in these stark terms, but just for the sake of making it easy here, I will. You got the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys are the servants of the Lord who tremble at the word of the Lord. Now, who are the bad guys? Your brethren who hated you. Here he's speaking of, you've got these two groups, right? The, the people who are of genuine faith following God, his true servants. And then you've got the people of empty ritual and empty religion. Well, friends, let me clue you in on something. The people of empty ritual and religion are going to persecute those who have true faith. That's what he says. Your brethren who hated you, 
who cast you out for my name's sake. The people of empty religion and ritual, when they persecute the people of genuine faith, they think they're doing God a favor. They think they're acting in in God's name. They think they're glorifying the Lord. But at the end of it, look at what God says. They shall be ashamed. Oh, you bet they will. Look at verse 6. The sound of noise from the city. A voice from the temple. The voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. You want a word to tremble at? That's one to tremble at. Fully repays. Anybody here want to be fully repaid by the Lord? No, thank you, Lord. We'll take your grace. We'll take your mercy. Verse 7. Here's the blessing again. We're, we're shooting back and forth between blessing and cursing. Before she travailed, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who's heard such things? Do you understand what he's saying? A painless birth is what he's saying. He says, who's heard such things? Who's seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she gave birth to her children. Shall I not bring the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Zion. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. That you may, be, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom. And that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. You see, here God prophesies a, a day when the victory will come easy to Jerusalem. When when they'll fulfill Romans chapter 8, verse 37, they'll be more than conquerors through him who loved us. She gives birth, but without pain. Truly, who's heard of such a thing? And in that day, God looks at all his people and says, You go and rejoice with Jerusalem. All God's people are called to share in Jerusalem's joy. The time of deliverance, the victory, the vindication have come. So be glad with her, all you who love her. Jesus Christ comes back to this earth and sets things right. It's going to be unbelievable. We're going to have a joy, a rejoicing that you just can't imagine. Now we rejoice in faith. Then... We're going to rejoice in the fact. It's a woman who becomes pregnant. And the mother and father are so happy. There's the wife and the husband. They're so happy that they don't know about the the fate of that child, do they? They're, They're happy in faith. But when the baby's born, it's a different kind of happiness, isn't it? The baby's born and everything's fine. That's a happiness, not so much of faith, but the fact has been fulfilled. That's what it's going to be like, friends. Now, this intense, great rejoicing sometimes makes the world uncomfortable. Sometimes it makes us the target of the world's mocking. You know, people just don't understand it when we're happy in Jesus. They don't. It blows their mind. They can't deal with it. It doesn't compute. Charles Spurgeon said something well. If it was true in his day, far more in our own. It's very seldom are believers nowadays charged with being too fanatical, nor even with being too enthusiastic. And this is a sign that we are below the right heat. When the world calls us fanatics, we're nearing that point of devotion which is due to our Lord. 
It is scary that we don't get called fanatics much anymore, right? Verse 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides. You shall be carried and be dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When the Messiah returns in glory and triumph, the peace of Jerusalem will be like a gentle, powerful river that's never disturbed, but not Jerusalem alone. The the glory of the Gentiles will be like a flowing stream. But if you want to see the depths of the comfort, the depths of the restoration, look at it there in verse 13. As one whom a mother comforts, so I will comfort you, the Lord says. God speaks with supreme tenderness to his faithful servants. Can I tell you that nobody can comfort like a mother? And God will bring that kind of comfort to his people. He didn't say he's going to comfort like a father, did he? Now, fathers can comfort, right? They can do the best they can. But that child with the skin knee, they'd really rather have mom, wouldn't they? God's given a mother a particular ability, a particular empathy, a particular a dedication to comforting the needs of that child. And so when the Lord says he's going to comfort us, what picture does he use? Not of a father. He says, I'm going to comfort them like a mother. You know, you, you see the, the little one sick or hurt, and dads feel it. Sure, we feel it. But not like the moms. That's how much the Lord loves you. That's how much the Lord wants to comfort you tonight. But look at it here, verse 14. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination of the mouth shall be consumed together. Friends, it's heavy, isn't it? God makes it very clear here that that even though comfort is coming for his people, for those who are not, it's only judgment. Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. And those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pol and Lud, who draw the bow, and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame, nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles." Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and in camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. What a glorious regathering, God says. First of all, they're going to go out to testify of the gospel and to preach the gospel to all the nations. Do you see it there? There's people in the coastlands, verse 
19, who have not seen my fame nor my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. I don't know, maybe this prophetically in some way refers to the 144,000 during the Great Tribulation. And maybe it refers to marvelous Jewish evangelists during the days of the millennial earth. But God's going to work this in a glorious way, sending out his people and then drawing back his people into Jerusalem, into the land of Israel. Look at the conclusion here at verse 22. Whereas the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? This is a glorious, glorious ultimate triumph. You see, throughout the majestic book of Isaiah, the nations have been judged and often condemned, but God has an ultimate plan to reach the nations. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation chapter 5, where it says that he saw a multitude around the throne of God from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. And this is the fulfillment of what it says, that all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Look at verse 24. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Friends, some from every tribe and tongue will have a destiny of ultimate triumph. Some also will have a destiny freely chosen of ultimate tragedy. And using the figures of ultimate and eternal damnation, the worm that dies not and their fire is not quenched, Isaiah describes the fate of those who reject God, even if they have the veneer of empty religion. One old commentator, Matthew Poole, says, After this life and at the day of judgment, they shall go into eternal torments, where they will feel a work of conscience that shall never die and a fiery wrath of God upon their souls that shall never go out. Two things to conclude the book with. First of all, it concludes with a pretty sobering contrast, right? Verse 23, what is it? All worship. Verse 24, what is it? The worm that does not die. Friends, the book of Isaiah closes with a sobering contrast revealing the ultimate, eternal importance of this present life. Each life can choose its destiny. Is it going to be worship or the worm? I mean, really, that's it. He lays it out right there. Which is it? Being with all God's people worshiping around the throne or with the worm that does not die in the fire that is not quenched? There's another beautiful note of redemption here in these last few verses. Look at it here again at verse 22, or actually verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come and worship before me, says the Lord. Well, I thought we were in turn there. I thought we didn't need these markers of time. You're right. But you know why he refers to that? What is it here in the last verse, the last couple of verses of the last chapter of the book of Isaiah? At the new moons and the Sabbaths, all are worshiping. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. 
Look here with me, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12. Look at what the Lord says at the opening of the book. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of the assembles, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. That's how the book of Isaiah began. God abhorring the new moons and the Sabbaths that the empty religion of his people kept, the outwardness, just the external formalism. Now it's different. At the end of the book, there's redemption. Now the new moons and Sabbaths are times of worship, where God is truly worshipped in spirit and in truth. Friends, we've seen a lot of this theme through these last two chapters. Beware the danger of an empty religion. Beware the danger of an empty relationship, of just a religious formalism, of being a hearer of the word and not a doer. Friends, that's the redemption that God offers at the end of the book of Isaiah. So we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we might be gathered with that great throng all around the throne. Let's pray. Father, I pray that every soul present here tonight and everybody who listens to this later will choose eternal worship instead of that eternal worm. Father, give us a mind that's set on eternity, that realizes that what we live during our days on this earth, it's just a vapor. It's the smallest slice of the pie that we can imagine. You've given us something much greater to live for. So help us, Lord, to glorify you, to be fearless and and committed in our devotion to you. Help us to tremble at your word. Search our hearts and speak to us. We love you, Lord. We praise you tonight. Thank you, God, for our time in the book of Isaiah. We praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.